Welcome to the Security Analysis Podcast. This podcast explores investment strategies, economics, personal finance, and stock analysis. It features real conversations and analysis to inform, educate, and entertain. Note that nothing in this podcast is investment advice, and it is for entertainment and discussion purposes only. Do your own due diligence before making any investment. Now, on to the show. Today, I'm talking with Frank Vasquez. Frank is a retired lawyer with degrees in economics and engineering from Caltech and a law degree from Georgetown. He runs a great podcast called Risk Parity Radio, where he discusses he discusses risk parity investing concepts for do-it-yourself investors. On the podcast, he covers core investing concepts, and then he also answers questions from the audience. Welcome to the podcast, Frank. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on. So how did you first become interested in investing? Well, let's see if we can keep this story <laughs> short enough so, <laughs> so your audience doesn't fall asleep. I was uh, so I, I went to college back in the 1980s and graduated with degrees in engineering and economics. Thought I might go on in economics, but decided to do, just on a lark go to law school, which ended up being an interesting choice for a career. But then I really, I mean, I really didn't have much of any money to invest until actually I got out of law school and got a a real lawyer job. And at that point, I, I was very interested in actually uh, futures and so traded futures contracts for a few years, which was interesting, uh, but it was a lot of work, particularly at that point in time, because I was literally manually entering the, the data into programs that I wrote myself. Wow. <laughs> and determined that. Yeah, I could make some money off of it. You know, I was making like the equivalent of say 10% a year, but it was it was too much work. And once I started having children, that needed to go by the wayside. And I realized that, you know, for at the time, it, the, the, the best use of my finances were paying off debts and just doing the ordinary, put it in your 401k type stuff. And so continued to to build that out and build out a family. But it came to a time right around between 2008 and 2010, when I, I kind of realized, okay, we're going to reach, you know, financial independence sometime in the next decade. And, you know, it, it was sort of like, well, what do I, <laughs> 44 years old at the time, I was like, what do I really want to do with myself in terms of, of you know, life and, and investing and everything else? And so at that time, it was right after the financial crash. I, and I've always been interested in investing, always read about investing, but I, I just kind of followed the the basic trends, which were in the 1990s, it was Peter Lynch, pick your favorite, you know, fund manager and try mm -hmm. to figure out who that was. And then early 2000s, that transition into index investing, bogleheads, that sort of stuff. But it got to 2010 and i'm looking at well what what do i really want to do for sort of our portfolio when i retire what what does that need to look like and i was very dissatisfied with uh, sort of the common things that were thrown out there i remember reading this book by lawrence kotlikoff who is still out there publishing books who recommended and this is about 2005 or 2006 a portfolio that was 
one-third total stock market U.S., one-third total international stock market, and one-third U.S. tips. And you can imagine how horribly that did in 2008. And it was those sorts of ideas that I, I just knew that there was not good information out there and i felt that it there on the uh, on the personal finance side there had to be better information and so when i started researching and this was at the time when it was much more difficult to do research i mean you had books you could buy at the bookstore about personal finance and stuff but the, mm-hmm. the kind of information that we have today and i'm talking about white papers from hedge funds and academic papers were not very accessible uh, or findable. And so I ran across by happenstance around 2011, the early sort of papers that Bridgewater had thrown up on their website. And they had this really primitive website there. And Ray Dalio had published this like 100 page memo, which was (laughs) kind of like the first draft of his book, Principles in Retrospect. I can't find this thing anymore, but I wish I could. But half of it was like how he managed his business and those sort of radical transparency issues and things that he's known for. And then the other half was just basic principles of investing, including what he called the Holy Grail principle, Hmm. which is essentially really focusing on maximizing diversification as a core principle for investing. And there's a nice little video that I can uh, link you to. It's five minutes long. He explains this on a whiteboard, but it's just that that basic concept, which he refers to the holy grail of investing, and I call that the holy grail principle. And so that idea was what then motivated me to sort of, well, well, how do we do that? And so one of the things I, I read his stuff, and then I read stuff about the permanent portfolio, and I went back and found Harry Brown's books from the 1980s and read those and a variety of other things. And then other papers and things from AQR and other places became public and were accessible. It was also, so I was sort of fiddling around with sample portfolios. This is between 2010 and 2015. Mm -hmm. The problem being there was no good way for an amateur investor to analyze these things in any meaningful way. We just didn't have the tools. Around that time though, one of your other guests, Tyler, came out with what is called portfolio charts where he had assembled a whole pile of data, put it into spreadsheet form, and then and then created graphical representations of that, which allowed you to go in and analyze various kinds of portfolios. And shortly after that, Portfolio Visualizer came out, which was another huge data set and set of tools for individual investors to really do those sorts of things. And so with those tools, I was able to construct sort of better, more diversified portfolios. And when I was thinking about what kind of portfolio do you want to hold in retirement or to be living off of or decumulating out of? And I concluded from that that the really what you were looking for is not, in an accumulation portfolio, obviously you're just trying to accumulate as much as possible over some lengthy period of time. When you are trying to draw down in a portfolio, though, what's more critical is how, how much you can take out of it which mm-hmm. is reflected in what is known as the safe withdrawal rate or the projected safe withdrawal rate. And so that is a different measure for every portfolio. One of the nice things about what Tyler's work at Portfolio Charts revealed was there were different projected safe withdrawal rates based on what kind of portfolio you hold. 
And it wasn't in, it wasn't intuitive necessarily as to what combination of things worked best. I said on my podcast that's you know, so my background's in material science as far as engineering is concerned. It was like as a material scientist, you know that you know you can make various kinds of steel or other materials, but you really don't know what the properties of it are going to be until you make one and then go break it mm-hmm. and test it. And so this was a way of kind of doing that. Well, let's put in different kinds of portfolios and to see what kind of safe withdrawal rates are generated out of those things over long data sets and periods of time. And so it was those those two ideas that kind of led me to where I am now with the kinds of portfolios we we talk about at the at my, on my podcast. So it basically if you listen to the early ver- the early podcasts, I kind of lay all this out in the first 10 or so that th- I'm looking at three principles. One is this holy grail principle, which is the main one about diversification. And then for a do-it-yourself investor, I always look, I, I also look at two other principles. One of them is called the macro allocation principle. And this one is best expressed if you go and read Jack Bogle's Common Sense Investing. Go to the end of the book, read chapters 18 and 19. And what is in there and what is revealed is a lot of research showing that if you compare a bunch of portfolios or a bunch of managers, if you look at the macro allocations, basically the stocks, the bonds, and whatever else you have in there, all portfolios with the same kinds of macro allocations tend to perform relatively similarly. Mm -hmm. So what that tells you is that is, that is a main decision point in, in your portfolio construction is, well, how how many, what the, what is the per, overall percentage of stocks? What is the overall percentage of bonds? What's the overall percentage of whatever else you're putting in there? And then, and then another one I use is the simplicity principle, which is l- let's make this as simple as it can be and still work, essentially, because most people... Going back to my time trading futures in the 1990s, <laughs> don't necessarily have the time or inclination to implement a complex strategy. So, coming up with something that that works well enough that you can manage is is important for somebody who is doing this yourself. And so, that principle really comes from people like Rick Ferry, who says this. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was one of the principles that Paul Merriman learned when he went and saw Jack Bogle because <laughs> he went there and Bogle said to him, this is like 2017 before Bogle died. And he says to him, you know, I really like what you're doing there with your foundation and these portfolios you created, but what you created is just way too more complicated than other people can handle. <laughs> <laughs> so why don't you come up with simpler versions of this? So to his credit, he has in the past five or six years come up with, very simplified versions of things down to two funds in, a, in a, an accumulation portfolio that, but I tend, I think about that when I'm thinking about portfolio construction as well, but now I'm probably droning on much too long for your listeners. So no, it's great. I'm just let letting you, you roll. <laughs> <laughs> you can see why I can run a solo podcast fairly successful. <laughs> yeah. I love how, when you started investing, you go right for the hardest thing imaginable. Like I'm going to trade options contracts. I think that's I think that's awesome. It was it was fun. It was exciting. But you had to do it. <laughs> you did it over the phone. 
I mean, there was no. Internet. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, you know, I was calling up my broker every morning about, you know, what's going on out in uh, coffee land or cocoa or crude oil or whatever else I was trading. <laughs> like trading so, places kind of. It trade. was. It was exactly <laughs> like that. And, and I remember this one day, you know, most memorable trade. Her name was Lisa. And she calls me up and says, there was a freeze in Colombia. <laughs> you needed a crop report. So I made like, yeah, I made like $10,000 on this one little contract trade. <laughs> awesome. It was a lot of, really a lot of money for what I was doing at the time. And so, yeah, it, you're still able to do things like that, but you did almost have an advantage because it was so hard that if you were willing to put in the work, you could come up with basic trend following systems and things like that. But what's interesting to me about about that is now we are coming full circle with respect to things like managed futures that they're they're now more accessible to do-it-yourself investors, which they really weren't tradable for most people in the past <laughs> forever. Right, right. Until, until very recently. Right. And so something else I thought was interesting is you and Tyler are both engineers. And I love that engineers bring such a good mindset to investing, I think, because they're they're saying like, well, what is the evidence? Prove that that works. Because um, so many things in investing are like, you hear this compelling story and it doesn't necessarily reflect reality. Yeah. So, so much of investing relies on sort of guru worship mm -hmm. or the appeal to authority is the fallacy involved. Mm -hmm. Engineers tend to want to look under the hood and say, okay, you say that works. Why do you say it works? What is the evidence that it works? <laughs> what about other options? And it's interesting if you survey people that listen to my podcast, besides friends and family who find me entertaining. I think you're entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> I drop a lot of sound bites on a lot of things because the, <laughs> the initial purpose of my podcast was just to lay this stuff out so my adult children would listen to it. So they want to hear SpongeBob clips and things like that. <laughs> and we put those in there for them. So they listen to it. But anyway, getting back to this, if you if you survey most of my audience, it is a lot of engineers. It is a lot of doctors. It's a lot of people who ask the question, what else is there? I mean, if my, my podcast had an, a name to describe what's, what we're doing there is that question, what else is there? I've read common sense investing. I've read all of these books about model portfolios that are 10, 12 years old. I know how those things work. I know how to be a successful do-it-yourself investor. Now, what else is there? And that's really what I'm trying to explore, not only for my audience, just for my own personal edification, because I, I do view personal finance as a technology that evolves and not something that is you're going to find the magic formula written on a dead sea scroll somewhere right <laughs> right <laughs> that that over time there are better financial funds products things there's no fee trading now there's more information out there 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 are better ways of doing things now than there were five years ago that there were 10 years ago and certainly before that and if we think about what we do now as hopefully the latest iPhone and what people were doing in 2010 as a BlackBerry, I think that really captures <laughs> where do-it-yourself investing is now or could be. Most people don't want to think that hard, which is fine because the, the methodologies that were developed 
around 2010 or had come to full fruition still are still good. They still work. They're still fine. But for us curious people, we do want to ask that question. What else is there? Right. You don't want to fall into that foolish consistency. That, that, uh, uh, no, that is also <laughs> a major <laughs> theme of my <laughs> podcast in life. <laughs> Emerson's admonition from the essay Self-Reliance, which is a foolish consistency is a hobgoblin of little minds adored by little statesmen, philosophers, and divines, which is just the idea that just because you thought something before or did something before doesn't mean it's the best idea or decision today. It's interesting how often that idea appears in even personal finance. Mm-hmm. If you go back to a book like Your Money or Your Life, that book has a has a what she calls the parable of the ham, which is about a little girl is asking her mother why they cut the, the ends off the ham before they cook it. And the mother doesn't know, but she's been doing it her whole, whole, whole life. Asks her mother, says, I don't know, ask your, <laughs> ask your grandmother. And they ask the the great grandmother and she says well yeah i had to do that because it wouldn't fit in the pan <laughs> <laughs> yeah and there's so and, you're right there's so many things like that and, in investing that, where... the, the so many things that are common talked about in personal finance are are remnants or residues mm-hmm. of ideas that may have been the best idea in the past but are no longer the best idea because things have changed hundred percent. Yeah. And things have certainly changed first, like you mentioned with portfolio charts and portfolio visualizer, investors have tools they never had before. On top of that, you have all of these wonderful ETFs where there's so many different ways to get great exposure to asset classes. It's definitely, it's been a sea change, I think in the last 10 years. That has really been a revolution. And there's two aspects to that revolution. One was the ETF revolution itself. And going from mutual funds to ETFs and then expanding those into the basic factors and durations. So that is, if you know the history of Vanguard, it's very funny that the people that work with Jack Bogle and roll out the ETFs the first time I listened to one of them is interviewed on Barry Ritholtz's podcast. And he's basically, Jack Bogle didn't want anything to do with ETFs. He hated them. Mm-hmm. They almost had to do it in secret. <laughs> but that was what the market was demanding. And the, by the market, I mean RIAs, people who manage money professionally are looking for the best tools for their clients. And they started demanding ETFs. And not only ETFs, but ETFs that were not just, okay, here's the total stock market, but we want things that are factor-based. You know, mm-hmm. we want things that we want a small cap value one. We want, we want things that are sector-based. We want one that's all energy. We want one that's all technology because, and with bonds, you had then, you know, Vanguard now, if you want treasury bonds at Vanguard, you have three three funds. You have a short-term treasury, you have an intermediate term treasury and a long-term treasury. And you can combine those in the way that suits you as opposed to having to take some total bond fund that is mixed in a certain way that you may, may or may not want. Right. But the evolution of those was kind of demanded by the marketplace of the registered investment advisors, people that run family offices and hedge funds, who I really look to as the best practices. If those mm-hmm. people are are using these products, there's a reason for it. And as a do-it-yourself investor, I want to know, why are they doing that? Can I do that? It would be good for me, or is it a bridge too far? 
And so that whole evolution, I think, was very important. And, and, and it's exemplified by simply by looking at the products a place like Vanguard now puts out. Mm-hmm. And, and, that, and that the fact that they now recommend that their customers convert mutual funds into ETFs because they're more efficient. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the, e- the other the other more recent revolution has to do with the availability of alternative investments. And the SEC changed some rules back in 2018 around mm-hmm. that allowed particularly things that were based in commodities or futures trading or other alternatives to be presented in ETF forms. And so since then, in the past five years, there is kind of an explosion of different ETFs from you know places like Simplify and uh, Wisdom Tree has gotten in there. Some of these things have leverage in them that is designed for a long-term holding, not the short-term trading things that have been around for a decade or more. But there are many, many of these alternatives coming out as we speak. I think Corey Hofstein just released one this past year, which is like a combination between a treasury bond fund and a managed futures fund mm-hmm. to do what they call return, he calls return stacking, which is another variation on holy grail principles. <laughs> all, all of these methodologies are variations on this idea of maximum diversification, which is the, the holy grail principle. Yeah, it's amazing. I am going to get some of the ETF providers on this podcast. So like I'm going to talk to Jeremy Schwartz at Wisdom Tree. Hopefully we'll talk about like NTSX and some of yep. those funds. I'm going to get Alpha Architect on here. I'm really looking forward to talking to people who are kind of like leading the charge of this whole revolution that's taking place because it is amazing and it is a great tool for for investors, I think. Yeah, and I'm very fortunate with my podcast. I mean, I, I not only I'm aware of these things and listen to them and read them, but my listeners actually flag them and mm. send them in. So it's, what do you think about this? So in a large respect, in my, my podcast has turned into this kind of dive bar where these people hang out and talk about stuff. It's like, check this out. <laughs> Did you see this? And then we we talk about these various things. So some some of my listeners are very interested in levered portfolios and, yeah. building, and building those out. And that is always be, that is another kind of separate holy grail. That obviously the the original idea of risk parity was to take a very conservative portfolio and lever it up, which is not really uh, useful for most do-it-yourself investors. But now we are getting to the point with these kinds of ETF products that may be more possible and viable. Particularly, you mentioned that Wisdom Tree product, NTSX, which is mm-hmm. a, essentially a, a 60-40 portfolio combined of the S&P 500 and a treasury bond fund levered up one and a half to one. So it's like a 90-60 portfolio. But, and the, but the expense ratio is only about 0.25. So it's a reasonable cost for somebody to use as the basis for a portfolio to construct something around. So somebody like Corey Hofstein is doing return stacking is going to take something like that and then put his, you know, treasury managed futures thing or something else on top of that to gain some amount of leverage, but have a very diverse portfolio that ideally is still only going to have the same volatility characteristics as say, a you know, a total stock market fund or something like that. Gotcha. So 
Before we get into like leverage and more of the complex portfolios, I thought it might be helpful for the audience if we start off with some of the more basic risk parity portfolios. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that Ray Dalio All Seasons portfolio, which you mentioned earlier in the podcast and talked about how you read that paper. So that seems like that was really, that and Harry Brown, I guess, were the first true like att- cracks at this. So what do you think about that portfolio and what are kind of the limitations of it? Yeah, where that portfolio actually comes from, just so we're clear on this, is this was Tony Robbins' interview of Ray Dalio for his book, Money Master the Game. Yeah. And he asked Ray Dalio in that book, well, for some, you know, basic do-it-yourself investor type person, what kind of thing would you recommend? Mm -hmm. And say, so at the time, he came up with basically the, this portfolio that is essentially a 30% a total stock market fund, 55% in intermediate and long-term treasury bonds, and the remaining 15% divided into golden commodities. Mm-hmm. So what, what Bridgewater was doing with the, that kind of portfolio originally was taking that and then add, adding leverage to it because that is an extremely conservative portfolio with only 30% in stocks in it. It's marginally what somebody might want in the most conservative view of a retirement portfolio, but it's Mm -hmm. not really there. So to me, that is just a kind of reference to use. If you look at, there are two now ETFs, that construct portfolios like this, but add the leverage. Mm-hmm. Those, those ETFs are RPAR and UPAR. And they have taken a, a portfolio that is, is organized a bit like that. It's more complex with more moving parts, but added leverage to it. So one of them is like one, 1.2 to one, and one of them is 1.6 to one. So that that kind of portfolio it can work for what you're doing, but it really is more of somebody that is managing some kind of a hedge fund with leverage and they're doing some active management of it, which is why I think the, the idea of it is, is very useful, but as you probably don't want to take that off the shelf and use it by your, yourself, it probably is not going to be appropriate for either retirement accumulation or just about anything else. The idea, and this is, What's interesting about risk parity is it's developed far enough that it's in textbooks now. So if you go and pull out the CFA manual, there's a whole chapter just about risk parity. <laughs> and, and we'll talk about this. And the idea of the, the the other idea that is in there that is less useful for do-it-yourself investors was actually trying to balance out the volatility of each asset or risk characteristics and they use volatility as a shorthand. This doesn't exactly match risk, but it's close. So the idea was to balance out those risk characteristics of the various assets that were in the portfolio. I think that's probably less important for most people coming to that because it's not mm-hmm. that in terms of, say, a retirement portfolio, that and the safe withdrawal rate are two different things. The idea of trying to maximize the safe withdrawal rate and trying to actually balance out risk-wise the pieces of a portfolio are related, but they're two different things. In in some respects, 
I wish I would have named my podcast something else, but Risk Parity Radio just kind of rolls off the tongue. Yeah. Holy, <laughs> it's a good name. Holy Grail Principle Radio or <laughs> Max Diversification <laughs> Radio doesn't really roll off the tongue and you're not even sure it's about investing. <laughs> so, so I chose be about Indiana Jones and the last crusade or something. Yeah. So I chose the most, <laughs> the most adjacent <laughs> name for it with the idea that, yes, that, that is a, it, it's more of an example of this maximum diversification idea in a portfolio form. Gotcha. So, when you're talking about, so you mentioned like all seasons is kind of like the base portfolio, a basic portfolio without any leverage. So on your yeah, website, I would call it, I would call it a reference, a reference, re- reference because portfolio. because I probably would not use that as a base for anything that I would hold myself. Gotcha. So for among those reference portfolios like the permanent portfolio, all seasons, and Tyler's portfolio, the golden butterfly, which is 20% US stock, 20% US small cap value, 20% cash, 20% long-term treasuries, and uh, 20% gold. So among those reference portfolios, for someone who doesn't want to use leverage or get very fancy with it, what do you think is kind of the best of those? Yeah, I think in terms of maximizing a safe withdrawal rate, there are a few principles mm-hmm. that you can follow or sort of guidelines. The first one would be that the portfolio probably needs to have between 40 and 70% of equities in it. Mm-hmm. And this has been verified by multiple sources. If you look at the Wade Files and the David Blanchett's and the people on the comfort from a retirement point of view, Michael Kitts's those sorts of have have gravitated towards that. And that was even apparent from Bill Bangin's original research. That gotcha. it, he thinks it's 55%. I think it's somewhere between 40 and 70. <laughs> and that's what somebody like Wei Fa would say. Within within that allocation, I think at least at least half of it needs to be value tilted. Mm-hmm. And so Love that cowbell. Yes, <laughs> that small cap value. <laughs> that and that that well, the, the, so the simplest formulation is kind of what Tyler's done with mm-hmm. half total, half of his stock allocation is total stock market, half of it is small cap value. And so, if you're looking for a simple solution, there you go. <laughs> gotcha. There are a, a lot of there's a lot of other options, obviously, within that. Uh, that doesn't talk about whether you want international stocks or not. I would not think of international stocks as a allocation by itself, but it, you need to apply factors to that. So mm-hmm. if you want small cap emerging market, <laughs> I think you need to be thinking about it in those kinds of terms. The other issue that is interesting that's came up, I don't know if you've read, there's a paper by Alpha Architect that came out at the end of the last year which was talking about whether the idea of small cap value is really more about value than small. Mm. And the analysis there is looking at an equally weighted portfolio kind of setup of value stocks, as opposed to the cap weighted things that people ordinarily run analysis. And basically that what they found is that they think that having a, an equally weighted kind of portfolio out of value is probably a little bit better than just having straight small cap value. I have not 
dissected the paper in any <laughs> way, shape, or form, but it's but it's very interesting and and it makes sense to me because I think that there's a lot of other value-related sectors that may be useful in a portfolio that you could put in there. Yeah, that's uh, a hot hot topic. Um, whether or not size works. I think Cliff Asnes, his view is that I heard him on a podcast once say that it's not the size premium that matters, but factors tend to work better in smaller capitalizations. So I guess him and Alpha Architect can have a debate about that. Yeah, there's there's a there's an ongoing raging debate about that. I think I think you can get very close to <laughs> good enough <laughs> with those simple yeah. two funds that Tyler's got that probably meets the 80-20 rule in terms of, <laughs> of, of this issue. I think the next principle that is for your bonds, you probably use, want to use treasury bonds. Mm-hmm. And the reason you want to use treasury bonds, U.S. treasury bonds, is that they are the most diversified bonds from your stock holding because they are the, because that that is your major driver still in these portfolios is is the stock holding. It's the most uncorrelated. Like treasuries yeah. are the most uncorrelated. Yeah, on the, stock it's the most uncorrelated. And every you know, every time they move together, somebody says, "Oh, the it's broken. They're <laughs> correlated. Uh, uh, everything's changed. Dogs and cats living together." <laughs> <laughs> there are papers that actually go back to the 1950s that show <laughs> that the correlation is volatile in it in and of itself but typically when you get de- depressive or uh, depression type episodes recessions that's when you see the, the that negative correlation come to the fore um, right for that the next principle which is heavily violated by amateurs these days is try to keep your short-term assets and what i'm talking about is Savings accounts, money markets, what are all those things that you are building CD ladders out of whatever you're doing? Those should probably be less than 10% of most people's portfolios, unless there's some particular reason not to to do Mm -hmm. that. And that's because if you look at the analyses, the portfolios tend to degrade in terms of both their overall long-term returns, but also their long-term safe withdrawal rates when, when that pile of stuff gets too big. Right. And the and where I see that happening most often these days is people are enamored with these ideas of bucket strategies and and want to hold 15 different kinds of CDs in 10 different buckets. Right. <laughs> Which is both crowding out the the main driver for your long-term portfolio <laughs> of stuff and then it is it's disguising the fact that the, your longer term stuff may not be very well diversified. Do you uh, think maybe it helps from a behavioral, even though it doesn't help a portfolio, do you think maybe it helps people's behavior? Yeah, it may. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm certain that's the, the psychology is is correct, that, that that kind of mental accounting is a good psychological tool. Mm-hmm. I, I think there's a confusion over whether it's a real strategy or mm-hmm. a management technique. And I think that right. that, that distinguish between things that are actual strategies of portfolio construction and things that are management techniques or labeling or mental accounting. And those things need to be separated. Another one is bond funds versus bond ladders. Those things perform the same over time. Ben Carlson wrote a nice article about this in, in November, and, and yet people think they are very different. 
they're they're only different from a an observational point of view and if you manage them differently right but if you are holding them over a long enough period of time you're going to end up with pretty much similar results so so that was my, that was my third <laughs> so, so we got we got three we got we got the stocks 40 to 70 percent with with a pivot to value with at least half and pivoted to value we, we've got used treasury bonds for your bond holdings and i'm talking mm-hmm. about your intermediate and long terms keep your short-term assets below about 10 percent, unless you have some other good reason for going over that mm-hmm. um, and then the last one is alternative investments and i think the the amount of alternatives Gold is the classic one. Mm-hmm. Uh, managed futures are also available now in a, in, a, in fund forms. DBMF is a good example of a, of a kind of index version of that. I think that needs to be occupied between 10 and 25% of your portfolio, which and these portfolios are designed to yield the best projected safe withdrawal rates. That's what they're designed for. So the best, one of the best tests of that, if you are familiar with Early Retirement Now and Karsten Yeska's site. Mm-hmm. He has a calculator there that goes back to 100 years. It's, wow. got, all, it's got all the Fama French stuff back to 1926. Wow, okay. And then some other data that goes back to 1871. And so you can run a portfolio like I've described in, in there. It is in a spreadsheet form, so it's not that user-friendly. <laughs> you have to really go through all the lines and make sure you put in the right parameters in the right well, box. If you want a century of data, you have to do some work, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, in contrast with what Tyler's done, which is keep all that behind it. <laughs> so, so you put in your things that it pops you out nice charts. Yeah. This has some nice charts, but most of it is is data-based. But anyway, you can get a portfolio that shows a historical save withdrawal rate of over 5% with those principles. With those basic principles. So yeah, that with those basic principles. So among the alternative assets, so you mentioned gold is kind of the king. That's the most classic one. I kind of, I prefer in my own allocation, gold simply because it's very low fee. It's easy to get access to. It seems to have the most uncorrelated relationship over time. So that's my preference. You mentioned managed futures. So I'm a little skeptical of that. Maybe you could convert me a little bit. Where I've always thought that kind of those managed future strategies over the long run don't really deliver a return where you're making a lot of money kind of when there's a big volatile market. And then, but over the long run, it doesn't really do as well. So, what would be the case for managed futures and like through that? Like, am I wrong in my understanding of that or? A, l- a little bit. Okay. Um, okay. The, the, the problem with them is not that they haven't made money over time. Mm-hmm. The main problem with them, at least for the average investor, is the vehicles that you invested through are were too expensive. Gotcha. Okay. They, they, they were, you know, charging like up to 3%. Oh, geez. Yeah. And so what you're looking for is a return of 6 or 7% or between 5 and 7% real. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's going to be less than the stock market. It's going to be some. It's it. It's going to be somewhere in between what you would expect a long term bond holding, treasury bond holding, and a long term stock market holding to have. And the problem and why this 
area, I don't feel it has been investable for mm-hmm. most of its existence, unless you were actually running some kind of institutional pension fund or something, picking your own managers and going through all of that, is that there were there were no like index fund type products. Right. Um, and now there are. Yeah. <laughs> But again, I, I think that's an optional thing. I think you're, you can be fine just with using a little bit of gold in your portfolio. Right. And by the way, the, the optimal amount of gold seems to be between 10 and 15% in most portfolios. And that is also based on actually research that Karsten Yeska did. If you look at safe withdrawal rate series number 34, he ran some portfolios with gold in them going back to 1926. And, and basically they concluded that Somewhere in between 10 and 15% is probably likely the optimal amount of gold in a portfolio to hold if you're going to hold it. That's that's the history of it. Makes sense. It, it's probably more valuable now than it was prior to 1970 because the dollar isn't pegged to it anymore. Mm-hmm. And so the 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 one of the kind of paradoxes about a diversified portfolio is you actually do want some volatility in your assets because you want them to go up and down at different times so you can rebalance them. That's how you get a higher safe withdrawal rate in most instances. It's just the the function of rebalancing things over time as they're all moving up and down together. It is an amazing, and it, that is an amazing thing. And it's so counterintuitive. Like when, and that's that Shannon's demon thing that Tyler has written about where you can have like, where it showed that basically you can have two 0% long run return assets and then if you're rebalancing them, that generates a return. And then you see that in a lot of these sample portfolios where often if you just average together what the assets on their own return, the portfolio always delivers a little bit more, which always yeah. blows my mind every time I see it. That, so well, that, and, and, and that is why it is so difficult to, and, and why you should not as a process say, oh, this asset looks good. Looks good. Let me just stick it in my portfolio. Mm-hmm. Because they all have to work together. And this the performance of the overall performance of the portfolio almost comes out like an emergent property that you cannot, as you say, you cannot just look at some average of performances of the individual assets and conclude what the what a portfolio of those things actually will do. And and that 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 was one of the most amazing and interesting things to me. It's like fractal magic with Benoit Mandelbrot. <laughs> <laughs> it's like alchemy or something. Like, how is this possible? <laughs> Michael Mobison writes a lot about this kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but but yeah, that was part of the, the revolution is by having tools that can actually put these things together and see what they would have been like, you can come up with a lot better ideas of what you want to hold than what we were doing before that, which was, well, you know, maybe some gold is a good idea in this portfolio. How much? Like, I don't know. And so the solutions were the kind of Harry Brown solutions. It's just like, well, let's just divide it one over N. And <laughs> which, which when you think about it, probably doesn't make much sense because they all have different performance characteristics and, and different risk profiles, which is where the risk parity idea comes in that if you have something, say you want to put Bitcoin in your portfolio, I mean, that has a risk profile that's like 10 times more volatile than probably anything else in the portfolio. 
Yeah. And so unless you limit that to a very small percentage, it's going to overwhelm the performance of the portfolio that it'll all be about how well Bitcoin did that year. Right. <laughs> <laughs> if, you're, if it's if your portfolio is twenty percent Bitcoin, it's going up. You know, it's going up up or down fifty percent a year. All right. Well, that's that's ten percent. That's ten points of percentage that's applied to the entire portfolio. So that's, so, <laughs> so so something like that. If if you put a volatile asset in your portfolio with with in a too large of a, of a proportion, it will its performance will just de- dominate and drown out everything else. Yeah, and that's kind of what Ray Dalio was talking about originally with this concept, where stocks were just dominating the return of every portfolio. And here's some ways to mitigate that. Yeah, yeah, and that. That principle is also, I think, why portfolios with with a moderate amount of stocks in them tend to do better in terms of being able to withdraw from them, draw down on them over time, that a portfolio that would be 100% stocks only has a safe withdrawal rate of about 3-something, 3.3, because of its volatility. So something I want to ask you about, safe withdrawal rates. So there is a lot of, I think, misconceptions about safe withdrawal rates in the financial world. So people tend to think, oh, 4% applies to everything, 60, 40, 100% stock. first mistake. <laughs> you see it get thrown around all the time. So high level, like what do people not understand about safe withdrawal rates? Well, the first thing is what you just mentioned is mm-hmm. that every portfolio will have a different projected safe withdrawal rate based on its components Mm -hmm. and then also how it's being managed in terms of rebalancing and so that that is you know one principle there are basically three principles we're talking about here in terms of portfolio construction for a retirement portfolio the first one is this asset allocation Mm -hmm. if you're trying to determine well what is what can i withdraw from this portfolio the first the first idea is well what's the asset allocation and if I put it through just these Bengen assumptions, what would the historical safe withdrawal rate of that be? That's the first thing. The, the second thing is, is well, how much are you, are you withdrawing in terms of a, a mechanism? And then the third one is, how are you adjusting that withdrawal? And this is something that people are just now beginning to understand and talk about because the original assumption of, of the Bengen portfolio is, is a conservative assumption that the the holder will automatically increase their spending every year by the rate of inflation. In truth, that was done for convenience because that's the data you had. Mm-hmm. And nobody does that. <laughs> the more reasonable assumption we now have is what we learned from David Blanchett's research, which is that a typical retiree will draw what they call a retirement spending smile. If you're looking for a way to just incorporate something like that into some kind of analysis, it basically works out to an average of CPI minus 1%. So an average retiree should be thinking about um, my likely expense track is going to be, if I'm just an average person, is going to be 1% less than what the CPI is, which if you if you put that assumption in there, you're automatically bumping up your safe withdrawal rate by about 0. 0.6. Mm-hmm. 
the other things that now are now being talked about is Guyton Klinger and all of the different methods of withdrawing, and they all modify that safe withdrawal rate. Some very significantly, the Morningstar did a, a, a nice review in November, December of last year, where they they took about five different of these variable withdrawal type strategies and applied it to a portfolio to see how that affected the safe withdrawal rate calculation. And it tended to raise it in most circumstance from, you know, 0.5 to up to like over one. If you're mm. talking about some of these strategies where you are modifying your withdrawals significantly by reference to the performance in the market. Gotcha. And, and, and those things divide into two ideas. One being you're making your variances based on your own personal expenses and experiences. It's like, well, I just won't go to Tahiti this year. I'll, I'll spend less. <laughs> and, the yeah. other one, and then there's the other one, which is, well, I'm going to do this on some market-based metric. What you find from that is you get more bang for your buck on the market-based things, but then you are basically committing to not spending money based on what the market is doing or spending more money based on what the market is doing, as opposed to just making your own adjustments in your own lifestyle which is probably more palatable to more people. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> yeah. That I, you know, don't want to tell Junior I can't pay for his college this year because it's the market. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, pal. <laughs> <laughs> you better fill out that FAFSA. <laughs> um, so this is a moving target that it's not just 4%. It doesn't apply to all portfolios. And it depends on how you are managing that thing will cha also change the metrics there. Gotcha. Um, and some of the things that we talked about before, for instance, dividing, making sure half of your portfolio is value tilted, mm -hmm. that also has a tendency to raise the safe withdrawal rate. Hmm. When Bill Bengen has done his more, and I wish he would publish this, although I understand he's getting up there in age, but he talks about it a lot, but he hasn't published it. But basically he says, you know, if I would have used a better portfolio that was like value tilted and had some other asset classes in it, uh, I can get a 4.8% safe withdrawal rate based on my original data. Yeah. Um, and I think that's super inspiring that there are portfolios that can make a 5% safe withdrawal rate. I think that dramatically kind of changes how much you need to save, how long your working career needs to be. It definitely definitely, I think, frees, frees you up for what's possible. It's, it's another lever to pull that you have. You have a portfolio construction lever you can pull to raise your projected safe withdrawal rate, how much you can spend. And then you have this withdrawal mechanism lever you can pull to also modify that and make it better in, in your circumstance. What is one of the funniest or more interesting paradoxes to me is that most kind of gurus in the personal finance space, whatever you want to call them, people mm -hmm. you know about, yeah, they're chronic underspenders. And if you look at what they actually hold and what they actually spend, they're typically spending 2% or less, which... <laughs> so they're going to die with a lot of money. They're going <laughs> to die with a lot of money. And also what they're doing is actually not geared towards the idea of my idea is, well, I want to spend, be able to spend more. Even if I don't spend more, I want to be mm -hmm. able to spend more of my money in retirement before I die. Yeah. Because 
you can always solve this problem by not spending money. You can always solve the retirement problem by not spending money. And if your withdrawal rate is less than 3%, you can hold just about anything. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> you get 30% stocks in there. You want to load it up with all kinds of annuities, bond ladders, whatever. It'll work. Yeah. Um, because you're not spending your money. I think that's Warren Buffett's approach. Hundred <laughs> yeah, percent yeah, stocks. I mean, I'm a billionaire. Him, who cares? For him, yeah, that's I. I mean, yeah. Of course, of course he says, yeah, hold ninety percent in the S and P five hundred and ten percent in well, I don't know, the short, short term, term short term treasuries. Short term treasuries. Yeah, that if you're spending less than three percent, that's always going to work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can hold hundred percent stocks. You can hold hundred percent stocks. You can hold thirty percent stocks. And, and spend less than 3%, you're going to be fine either way. So the, a lot of times the what people say is their strategy for retirement is not their actual strategy. Their actual strategy is don't spend money. Hmm. <laughs> Which kind of makes up for all the weird stuff they're doing <laughs> that is not actually you know based on any analysis, is based on psychology, comfort, familiarity something they like. But I mean, that's probably how they got so much money to begin with is because yeah. they're so reversed yeah. to spending money. Yeah. So I guess yeah. it's a tough balance is to kind of turn yeah. your brain in a different direction. Yeah, no, it was it was interesting. I, I think both Bill Bernstein and Alan Roth in the past year have decided that now is the time to create gigantic 30-year bond ladders. <laughs> 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 and, and Bill Birdseed, 74, he wrote an article saying, oh, well, this will take me out to 104. I'll be good. <laughs> it's like, Bill, I think I think you can <laughs> you can handle it. So, but, again, but again, that's that's just you can do anything you want if you're not spending your money. So we've talked about safe withdrawal rates and using these portfolios for retirees. What are some other use cases for one of these Rift Parity style portfolios? You can also use them or really any kind of retirement portfolio for intermediate accumulation. Hmm. And what I'm talking about is something like you are saving for a down payment on a house or some expense that you know it's going to be, you know, three, five years. You're not sure exactly when it's going to be. And so you are you were just using that to build up some assets because the the prior solutions were, well, you need to put it all in cash or a savings account, or you need to put it all in the market. I think, no, there's an intermediate thing you can do here. And one of the ideas is to use one of these kind of portfolios. And so this is something that I, my children do, my adult mm-hmm. children, they're in their twenties. So they're, they save for houses and other expenses in a risk parity style portfolio. So they have their retirement stuff. And I just told them, you know, put it all on S&P 500 and a couple other funds you can find there. If they have some cowbell, small cap value, put them <laughs> in there and just leave that alone. And then, you know, have some money for emergencies, expenses that is just sitting in your savings and checking. But then you have this intermediate fund that they build. And so our first one, it's on his second house. <laughs> yeah, the, the other thing that I gave him was Scott Trench's Set for Life book. 
which is about house hacking mostly mm-hmm. and saving. And so he's used this kind of portfolio to save for the down payment for the first house and now for the second house and continues basically to throw extra money into it. And so it just it just builds and it's just there for these kind of big expenses that you're looking for to save for. The re- and the reason why this kind of portfolio can work well for this is is probably what you know Tyler has mentioned with like the golden butterfly portfolio is these portfolios tend to have a maximum time of drawdown of less than five years or f- less than three years in most circumstances. Right. They don't stay down very long. Whereas if you are putting your money in a traditional like 60-40 portfolio or something that's just a basic a stock bond and a bond fund, a stock fund and a bond fund, that kind of portfolio can have a drawdown of up to 13 years historically, whether it's the 1970s or the 2000s. Which I don't think a lot of people, I don't think a lot of people understand that. So like there's, I think most people think of, oh, it'll be back in six months or a year if they've been investing for the last decade. But that's like something most people haven't even contemplated. They're always talking about this average drawdown. And the analogy you need to think about is, okay, you got to wait across this river the sign says it's an average of four feet deep. <laughs> you're going to wade across it without any, <laughs> you can't swim and, and, and you don't have any other. <laughs> right. You're not concerned about the average. You're concerned about the, the, the maximum problem or and how often that occurs. Because that, 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 the, those are the kind of the two features of, of portfolios that, play into the safe withdrawal rate is how deep is the is the drawdown and how long is the drawdown mm-hmm. and so that if you have something with less than a five-year drawdown that you are continually putting money in anyway because you're basically dollar cost averaging into it that that mechanism or practice also tends to reduce with the the drawdown of a portfolio because you're investing in the trough so, but but that is what our adult children use this kind of portfolio for right now to build these kind of intermediate funds that they can then use for houses, cars, boats named YOLO, things like that. <laughs> well, that's a great use for it. What do you think about people like me who use these portfolios for accumulation? So I just do it for accumulation because I don't want to lose money for 13 years. So what do you think about using it in those situations? I think it's fine. It, it'll take a little longer than it mm-hmm. might for another idea. But if, you, if you're not in a, in a hurry, you should be fine. I mean, if you, if you want to maximize accumulation, you don't care about volatility. That's the thing you're saying. You're saying you do care about volatility. Yeah, I care about it. It it, it freaks me out when I see the market Because (laughs) because that is also a a principle that needs to be adhered to, which is whatever you're holding, you need to hold on to it and keep Mm -hmm. doing it. Because the worst thing you can actually do is start jumping ship, fun chasing, getting in and out of stuff. That's why people tend to underperform, not because there's something wrong with the portfolio that they've gotten. It's because they can't hold it for whatever reason. And so you can certainly, and I I think Tyler mentioned it, he just would prefer to hold 
a golden butterfly as an accumulation forever yeah which is it'll work Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) it will it will probably take a little longer than it would have had he done like half total stock market and half small cap value in a merriman accumulation two fund portfolio but the trade-off is if you were to go with that 100% stock portfolio and freak out when it's down 50%, which it will be at some point, right? and then bail on it, you are you screwed yourself over and you should have just gone with the more diversified portfolio and rode that one. Because in that circumstance, all of a sudden, the tortoise, the diversified portfolio, is going to march ahead of the hare. The yeah. person, the person that bails when the when the when it's down, misses the the rebound. It's deadly. Yeah, one of the one of the most depressing graphs I've seen is the average investor return versus multiple asset classes, and basically the average investor underperforms like the CPI, like because because of that because they're all risk on when the market's hot, and then they bail at the lows and. What that does is it just produces like a one percent return over the long run. Yeah, that's that's very true. That's where the this bogey or comparison metric comes from. And these, I think it's a Vanguard study that was based on what <laughs> trying to um, improve the relative value of financial advice. <laughs> you basically compare it to people that that, that make a lot of mistakes. Yeah. And, the the those two common mistakes are wait till something's high buy it high and hope it goes higher <laughs> and, and then sell in a panic and it's interesting a lot of the material that though that is presented to investors encourages bad behavior mm-hmm. and, and what i'm getting at specifically there is you go to your 401k and you open it up and they give you these these funds they list all these funds and then they go, here's the one-year, three-year, five-year, and 10-year returns for this fund. And too many people use that as a basis for choosing what they invest in. Mm-hmm. And they're essentially buying high and hoping it goes higher. They don't, they don't realize that that short of a time frame is not a, a long enough time frame to make a judgment as to whether you should be holding something or not. It's that, and, and so the the very presentation of things like that encourages fund chasing. 10 years is just not long enough. Really what you want to see if you're going to do any analysis is you want to see the asset go through all of its different economic cycles. What did this do in a 2008? What did this do in the 1970s? What, yeah. That's how you go about looking at these things. And I don't think people understand that. I think most people think, oh, 10 years, that's a long time. But in investing, it's nothing. No, it's its, it's not long enough. I was listening to a nice interview of Oswat the Motorin. Oh, he's uh, great. He was on, on, this is on the long view if you want to look up the podcast. But the, and he was talking about valuation metrics mm-hmm. and, and the, the use of valuation metrics for predicting future stock returns or outcomes. And he's determined that the best one he can find is the equity risk premium, basically the difference between what equities are performing and treasury bonds are performing, Mm -hmm. which he tracks religiously like daily. But he says, that is the best one I could find, but I would never use it for trying to 
predict or make asset allocations because it's only about 17% correlated with actual outcomes. Jeez. Okay. So it's the best one and it's only 17%. (laughs) This one's better than all your CAPE ratio, all your PE ratios, all of those valuations. This is the best one according to the master guru Yoda of valuation. Mm -hmm. (laughs) This is is one, one area where I will take his word for it <laughs> without really needing to look too far under the hood. But he also said that in order to draw any conclusions about using one of these metrics for predictive purposes, you would need more like 150 years of data. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> not, not, not 10, not 20, not 30, 150 years of data. Yeah, a couple of lifetimes. <laughs> 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 that is something that, you know, everybody's looking for a crystal ball. There's a lot of valuation crystal balls floating around out there now. And what he's basically saying is stop looking. Could oh. use Sonia's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've I've always been amazed by that. Like I when I first was introduced to the Schiller PE, I thought that was the answer to everything. And I said, oh. Easy. This is easy. When the Schiller PE gets too high, you sell. When the Schiller PE gets low, you buy. And uh, yeah, in practice, it doesn't really work. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a lot of it. it was interesting. And this this also goes, I always want to look at the history of an idea. Mm-hmm. And in this case, the history of that idea is particularly interesting because wh- where this all came out of, right after the financial crisis in 2008, Mm-hmm. It was then that these papers were published about using the Schiller PE to predict a future performance of the market. And so if you look at what people were writing about in, say, 2010 to 2013, 14, there's a, a funny article that Morningstar published in 2011, where they interviewed Jack Bogle and a whole bunch of other people, who's Jeremy Grantham. And they were all saying, it's like, yeah, based on this P ratio, I think the next decade's not going to be very good returns for this stock. Just, just not going to be very good. Dead wrong. Probably, <laughs> <laughs> probably, probably four or 5%. Right. And you can imagine if you would have made a decision based on that, how bad that would have been. Mm-hmm. That the, the other... There's a paper, and I, I recently cited this in my podcast from 2013. I think it's written by David Blanchett, Wade Fowle, and Michael Finke, all very highly regarded people in retirement services. And they were saying that in 2013, based on these kind of metrics, these valuation metrics, that they thought that the chances of a portfolio survive, having a safe withdrawal rate in the next period of 4% were only about 50-50. Jeez, okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, that didn't work out so well either. No. Uh, we don't We don't talk about that paper anymore. <laughs> it's still there, though. That's the great thing about the internet. So Michael Kitts has actually looked at this, and I always go back to him when it's like, well, well who's actually looked at this and, and determined you know, what, what there is to it? And he basically said, it's like, it may tell you a cape ratio may tell you something about what the what the returns will be in 10 or 15 years it's not really going to tell you that much and if you try to use it over a longer per- 
projection it's wrong because of reversion to the mean that if the market has a bad if the next 10 years are particularly bad usually the 10 years after that or 15 years after that are going to be better and vice versa and the problem is you don't know which one's coming first yeah and it was also that that what people also recognized at that point in time was the this mean that they were trying to revert to in fact is not a stable mean no no way it's yeah. not stable and since it's not stable which which makes sense because markets are not normally distributed right they're distributed on power laws and fractals and so since that mean is moving all the time and you don't know which direction it's going and why there's no real way of doing it of 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 saying that this is too high yeah because you don't you don't know what you're comparing it to and and so they're the, the most recent work of people that are trying to do things with this are they, they keep they keep trying to figure out well how does the mean move <laughs> I use a, a different mean the other problem I see with it is 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 an interesting thing that nobody talks about which is okay that it would be nice for a portfolio if we're talking about valuation PE ratios or something like that that's a portfolio that's the entire market or an S and P five hundred that's cap weighted. Mm-hmm. What if your portfolio is not that? What if it already has a bunch of value stocks in it? And so it has a naturally a lower PE to begin with. Yeah, small cap value can do its own thing. What's the mean of your portfolio? Right. And so like the safe withdrawal rate, I think you would need to, in order if you were going to do this in a rigorous way, you would actually need to calculate a different CAPE ratio for every portfolio. Mm-hmm based on what its historicals are, based on what it's made out of. Because the the average PE ratios of different, not, not only different factors, when you get to the sectors, it's like, all right, well, they, <laughs> the average PE ratio of this, you know, the semiconductor tech thing is, you know, <laughs> 84, and the average one of this timber company is seven. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Which is one of the misleading things about international valuations. Like if you have some international index that's all in one like kind of garbage sector, well, of course, it's going to have a lower Schiller P than than the U.S. That is another deep problem that that people don't appreciate. It's one of of the things that I learned as a lawyer is I spent most of my career working with financial and technical experts on valuing things like a steel mill in Romania or a gold mine in Uzbekistan. Oh, wow, that's cool. Um, and so for every country, there is a different country risk factor that you would apply to it mm. based on things like how good are its laws, how good are its court systems, you know, how good are its capital markets all these things that are idiosyncratic to a particular country. And you would use that in terms of valuation to modify the discount factor you're applying to a discounted cash flow analysis. So mm. what that tells me, and if you you know go look up World Bank statistics about various countries, they, they put different risk profiles, percentages on different countries based on how well they're markets and legal area functions. Yeah. Um, and so for international investing, you cannot, for, first of all, it's it's not methodologically correct to compare the PE ratio of one country to what's going on in another country. Yeah. It should be different. Yeah. The averages should be different. Everything should be different because it's a different place and they do things differently there. 
And so you can't mix and match those things. You can't, and you can't compare them. You can't say because the valuation metrics for international stocks have been less than U.S., that that is a, a basis for saying that there's going to, one of them is going to revert to the other one. They're not going to revert to each other because they're composed of different things. And where you see that most dramatically is when you start looking at what sectors do these particular markets represent. Mm-hmm. And so for the U.S., there is a heavy tech sector, big tech, you know, all of the big all the biggest companies in the in the country now, the Amazons, the, the Microsofts, the Googles, the Facebooks, those don't exist in other countries. So that that skews the market towards that sector. Yeah. Now, if you go to Canada, what is on their stock market? Banks, natural resources. Banks and natural resources. Yeah. Same thing in Australia. You go to many other places and their market is fundamentally different than another country's markets because the kinds of companies and sectors represented on their exchange are different. Mm. So you would need to go and you can you can find things listed by sector and subsector that have all the average PEs for all these things. But in order to do this in a rigorous manner, you would need to break down each country by its sectors, figure out what should be an average for this group of sectors in this particular market and then decide based on its own reference, whether it's high or low, Mm. that comparing that market with that other sector to this other market with different components in it is not methodologically sound. Yeah, that makes sense. There's just another reason that that cannot work in any useful way, but it is commonly used that watch any channel about talking about investing in different countries or it's like, well, they've been doing badly and their valuation metrics are lower than the United States. So they're, they're going to catch up. <laughs> yeah. No. Not necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> Where, where's their Google? You know? Yeah. Coal companies are valued differently than, than Google. Yes, coal companies are valued differently. And, and, and it's striking in, in, particularly in developing countries, and I think this is one of the areas that is difficult for people to understand that in a lot of emerging markets, the kinds of things you would want to invest in are not publicly traded. They're private companies. Yeah, the, the consumer-oriented things that we can invest in in the United States are not investable in that other country. And what's probably on their stock market are some very large financial institutions that are more abundant connected with the government along with some other industries that are also wound up with with the government yeah something i was hearing a few years ago was that russian stocks are cheap and uh, it turned out they were they were cheap for a reason <laughs> that, <laughs> that, that is a, a prime a prime <laughs> example of a country risk yeah that if you have undemocratic countries where strange things may happen wars may break out other issues may arise that there is a reason why those those valuations are really low in those countries. 100%. And, and it's funny because if you talk to economists who study this and read the World Bank stuff, it's like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Um, <laughs> but then when you listen to people talking about investing in, in international funds, it's like they're saying things that, no, that that's not how it works. It's not Doesn't hold up. Not, not how any of this any works. Of this works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> and I mean, I think the other limitation of it is there's no announcement of when the low is, when the high is. Like one of the things I I thought about was if you like ended the CAPE ratio in 1995, you would say, oh, well, the high was in 1969 around 20 and it's at 20 now and the low is eight. So easy. I'll sell at 1995 and I'll get back in an eight. Well, it went to 44. It never got back down to eight. And you would have like been out of the market for 20 years. You, so. would, have, you would have missed everything. Yeah. Um, and that's comes back to what what the motor was saying. That, <laughs> it's like, yeah. It's like, don't use those for. <laughs> that's, not, that's not a good process for your investing. A hundred percent. So, okay. So let's talk a little bit about leverage. So you have sample portfolios that use a lot of leverage, which are experiments, I understand. And then there's like something like- Hideous risk- experiments. Yeah. <laughs> heinous experiments where crazy things are happening. And then there's like a portfolio like the risk parity ultimate, where you have some leverage in there. So how do you think about leverage? What do you think is the right way to go about it for, for an investor? Yeah, I don't know what the answer to this is. This is an evolving area in my mind that what I've seen evolve. Well, first, we know that, you know, putting too much leverage in anything makes it explode. And that's sort of been from time immemorial. Go back to long term capital management. (laughs) It's a graveyard. The most sophisticated (laughs) investors. But there's also good academic research, and uh, Ben Felix and the Rational Reminder people have talked about this before, that that is one of the ways to make a portfolio perform better, to get more out of a portfolio. There are basically two ways. Either you need to be a good stock picker and pick the right sectors at the right times, or you need to add leverage to it. Hmm. And traditionally, hedge funds did add leverage to really conservative risk parity style portfolios and and use that as a method for investing. So what what has come out for do-it-yourself investors is that was difficult to do mm-hmm. in the past because either you had to know how to trade options and futures pretty well, or you had to take margin, which risk was margin call. often very expensive and very difficult to manage. Mm-hmm. And in most Brokerage is discouraged it based on what they charge. Yeah. You know, Schwab or somewhere like that. You need to go to interactive brokers or somewhere like that that's t- intended for that purpose. So, but then we have these leveraged funds now, which were originally designed as trading vehicles. And the first ones came out, uh, UPRO back in like t- 2009, 2010, that era. And so they were, those are short term trading things. But then people started using them for longer term holdings. There is a nice site called Optimized Portfolios. I don't know if you know that that guy or that site, but he's all about analyzing these (laughs) (laughs) and coming up with leveraged versions of all of your traditional kind of portfolios. It was still that they weren't really designed for that purpose. And now we're coming around to leveraged funds that are designed for long-term holdings like NTSX, like we mentioned before. But then we also have people who are working in this area, professionals, uh, like at Simplify or Corey Hofstein or people at Resolve Asset Management and the RPAR and UPAR funds. So then you get to two other questions. Well, how much is the right amount? (laughs) And people are only beginning to grapple with that. 
the answer seems to be somewhere between 1.5 and 2, mm. um, based on what I've read in the past couple of years. And that's where people tend to gravitate towards. And there is also an interesting paper called Buffett's Alpha, yeah, which analyzes Berkshire Hathaway based on the leverage that yeah. it incorporates due to the float of the insurance companies inside of it. And he's basically um, applying that to low beta, high quality, large cap yeah, value. Yeah. yeah. And so, and that, and that ratio is 1.7 to one. Mm. And so these all seem to be converging around that area, which also happens to be the golden ratio, by the way, mm. <laughs> 1.61 to one. But how much and how to construct these things is still kind of a mystery. People are coming up with ideas and playing with them. And I have a lot of listeners who are very interested in this topic and are doing all kinds of interesting things with it. For me, it, it literally is, that is an experiment. That is something that is developing that mm-hmm. I'm interested in, but I can't say that I know what the right what the right amount of leverage is and then what it should be applied to or not applied to. Yeah. That's that's one of the things I don't have an answer for. For the audience, when he gets one of these questions, he'll typically play Homer Simpson saying, you have a gambling problem. (laughs) (laughs) These leverage funds. I always get a kick out of that. Marge, you have a gambling problem. (laughs) (laughs) I have a a listener named Alexi, who is a doctor in in, uh, in his actual life. The dude. Right. The, the dude. <laughs> we refer to as the dude because he said he liked the big Lebowski. So I started calling him the dude. Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> but he is always coming up with different variations of, of leverage portfolios and saying, check this out and check this out. And I really, <laughs> it makes me happy that that people are taking, you know, the, the work that I'm doing and, and, and doing something else with it because, you know, I, I don't pretend to have all the answers and I don't, I like to say, I don't have any answers. I just go try to find them. and collect them and present them and because i think that that other people are likely to come up with better ideas than that i'm likely to and it's the kind of open source do-it-yourself investing is kind of the way i would describe what we're trying to accomplish there because people will come up with with other other things you had mentioned that that risk parity ultimate portfolio that that is I, i just wanted to have I didn't, I have seven sample portfolios now. I really don't want to manage more of them and just wanted to have, but I did want to have something that that basically had some little piece of just about everything you could think of in it that somebody might use. And so it's it's not really optimized in any way. And there's no way of backtesting a lot of that stuff because we're we're got things in there like a commodities fund and a volatility fund and yeah and some other things like that that and so it it uh it really is kind of a kitchen sink there but but those are things that I'm constantly trying to look at and evaluate the missing holy grail piece to me has always been trying to come up with a good investment in volatility Mm. And Chris I Cole, I think he's talked about that in the Dragon portfolio. But I think his fund blew up. Oh, geez. Okay. Um, I guess that, then that's that such a great idea. At, if you looked at Dragon portfolio stuff there, there's a lot of it's no longer there anymore. 
And the, and the last I heard, he had joined forces with the mutiny people with their cockroach oh. portfolio. <laughs> so I guess. And, I mean, and I, yeah, think, I, mean, I think I don't know what happened. My speculation is that last year was really hard yeah. for people who were trying to invest in volatility because, well, yeah. because it didn't pan out that you would expect there to be much more in the way of volatility spikes with what happened with markets last year and their bad performance. But those volatility spikes really did not appear except in bond markets. Yeah. And, and so that strategy really suffered. And, and I still don't, I still don't know what the answer to that is. We certainly still, we certainly do not have good funds for investing in volatility. I can say that. Yeah, and markets tend to have sharp drawdowns. And then last year was kind of like an orderly drawdown. And it also happened to have an orderly drawdown at the same time that bonds went down. So I could see how a strategy trying to combine volatility with a stock and bond correlation would probably not work. It was just the year it didn't work. And it was yeah. enough to blow it up, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So no, something happened there. I I don't know what happened, but uh, but it's sort of like... I know that a lot of my links to what he had done over there, because I talked about this dragon portfolio back in early 2021 podcast, and a lot of that stuff is not there anymore. But it was it was an interesting idea. I mean, he had gone back 100 years and came up with this portfolio that was basically, what, it was 20% stocks, 20% bonds, and then he had Something like gold, that, yeah. gold managed futures and, and volatility investments. And again, when I looked at it, I said, you know, these can't be the right proportion. <laughs> yes, it wasn't. They're too close together because they, they these things are much different in terms of the way they behave. This is why I'll keep it basic. I'm content with my gold fund and my bond funds and my stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think uh and I think I think most people are. Yeah. Um, I know that a lot of the people that listen to my podcast have, have gravitated towards golden butterfly or golden ratio kind of things, but they've, to their credit, they've modified them to suit what they're doing and what they've already have, what they already like. These are not, again, th these are not put out as the be all and end all of anything. They are put out as, you know, basic ideas to build something around. And I do know a couple of people that invest in things that look like that risk period ultimate but generally, they've also made different modifications or to the extent they're investing in volatility, they've got it on a different kind of rebalancing schedule. So they're basically, whenever it spikes, they chop it off. Gotcha. And so I think that that, that probably makes sense too, to do it that way. But uh, yeah, well, it, it was interesting the way, and just so your listeners understand, I, I actually just started these portfolios. They're at Fidelity. We look at them every week and see what they did and, and track them over time, because I think it's much different living through something and watching it go up and down mm -hmm. rather than looking at some back test where five years are compressed into two inches on a chart. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, oh, that looks easy. So no, uh -oh. no big deal. Five years. That's nothing. 
but since you know real life it's different <laughs> since 2022 is like you know the, the worst year in 40 years for most diversified portfolios it, it it really is an interesting to me it's an interesting test for other people they would say oh this looks terrible it's like of course it looks terrible 2022 is a terrible year <laughs> and i didn't have the where the presence of mind to take all the money and put it in managed futures funds <laughs> So that's interesting. So there's a question I get on these a lot where the criticism I always get when I talk about this is, well, you're just looking at the data through a 40-year bond market and the correlations are all going to fall apart between these assets. And then after 2022, they typically say, aha, you see, it didn't work. So what would you say to those people? That, no, I, we're, we do incorporate the 1970s into this analysis. Mm-hmm which takes care of that. And then when I gave you that 100-year analysis, that incorporates the Great Depression, World War II, and a lot of other things. Mm-hmm. Also, the other research, and there's this. Th- th- there's an interesting paper that talks about, in particular, the, the correlation between treasury bonds and the volatility of the stock market. So it's basically, and they update it all the time. And it goes mm-hmm. back to the 1950s. It's published by some researchers in North Carolina at the university. And so... All of those things are, those criticisms are superficial. (laughs) And they don't pan out. And the the other, the main issue I have with them is like, all right, what are you, what are you proposing as the alternative? Yes. And usually it's some active strategy that where they're trying to predict when these things are going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. That, that we have to actually be comparing proposal A portfolio or strategy a with a different strategy mm-hmm. because you can always go look at a strategy in isolation and just nitpick it oh it didn't yes. work here oh it didn't work there oh right. <laughs> but that doesn't mean anything what also is another kind of meaningless phrase that people throw around and they don't really appreciate what it means and what it doesn't mean is well past performance is not indicative of future results as if that means that your strategy is going to perform worse in the future. Mm-hmm. No, all that means is you don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my answer to that is like, yeah, this could be even better than than what you <laughs> an even better alternative in the future. It, it doesn't tell you anything. Yeah. The, the, what that what it, that is really getting at is this this data issue that we talked about with Osmot the motor and and his hundred. He said we need 150 years of data because statistically if you only have a short period of data you can't make any conclusions out of it and you need more data and in my mind what the important data is is the data that comes out of bad environments or particular environments yeah so a year like 2022 basically has a base rate occurrence of two or three percent of the time you'll have a year like that yeah just historically but the fact that a portfolio being down 15 to 20% in that kind of a year, if that's the worst, that's not very bad. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a big deal. Yeah. And I mean, particularly, particularly if it, you know, recovered 5% in January. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so those are a lot of kind of qualitative criticisms that don't usually mean much when you look at the quantitative comparisons 
Yeah. And I think if you just apply common sense to it, like are stocks, treasuries, and gold going to behave differently from each other? I mean, I think the answer, if you just apply some common sense is unequivocally, yes, they're going to behave differently. So this yeah, should you would, work. You would not expect them to behave similarly right. for any particular reason. It can happen in one year, but to happen, I'd be amazed if it ever happened over five or 10 years, you know? Yeah. And, and the, and when you say something is uncorrelated, it means it will move in the same direction as something else about half the time. Mm, That's a good point. It's not perfectly (laughs) inversely correlated. It's uncorrelated. Yeah. That, that nothing is perfect, perfectly inversely correlated all the time. Uh, What you have is a, a probability but that is also related to economic conditions. Mm. And I suppose that's, that's one thing that we didn't talk about that I probably should mention, because one, the fundamental idea behind risk parity and, and diversification is this idea, and it's what you're getting at, at as to, well, why do these assets perform this way at yeah. this particular time? And the idea that Dalio has come up with and then other people have used and everybody says is my idea and they argue about whose idea it is, is simply that if you look at a matrix of increasing growth or decreasing growth on one axis and increasing inflation or decreasing inflation on the other axis, you can basically plot which asset classes do well in each of those quadrants of this thing that I've constructed. And so the basic idea is, well, let's have something in each of these quadrants because we know we're going to experience all of these economic environments. We just don't know which one we're going to experience, how severe it's going to be. But the idea of diversification and why why you expect these things to perform differently is, is because they live in economic environments that are changing all the time, the weather, if you will. Mm-hmm. And so you want to pick things that you know from prior experience tend to do well or badly and match them together so you have something in every quadrant then that's that's the sort of qualitative explanation for why these things work out the way they do in terms of you know the the quantitative would be the correlation numbers you come up with but those are going to change depending on the um time frame you're talking about but that 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 i think gets lost that when people say Oh, these things are correlated now, and and everything's changed. There's a new paradigm, and stocks and bonds <laughs> are going to be 100% correlated from now on. <laughs> Why do you say that? What evidence do you have for that? That's not consistent with past. The what's consistent with past data and economic environments is sometimes they're correlated, and sometimes they're not. Right. More often not, but sometimes yes. And so that that, but it's just it's it's just getting through this mindset of there's always a new paradigm where. <laughs> well, I think that gets clicks, you know, that gets clicks, that gets people's attention. Yeah. 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 That's, that's, the, way, that's, the, that's the way, so. that's the way headlines are written. That's also, it's also, well, you wonder why amateur investors, you know, underperform markets. Part of the reason is all of these screaming headlines. stuff <laughs> talking about new paradigms and Hindenburg omens. <laughs> yeah, it really does people a disservice. The financial media, for the most part, does people a disservice. Yeah, they're, 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 they're not 
they're not there. They're there to gather clicks and eyeballs and they work hand in glove with the financial services industry who is like, yes, we want you to get the clicks and eyeballs so that you can look at these ads that we're putting on there. And by the way, we'll appear on your programs and give you some content and you can interview us and then people will come to us. You know, the, 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 it all works together, but it really is mostly entertainment because the, the amount of financial information that is meaningful that comes out every day is probably two minutes worth. <laughs> and for, for the listeners, when Frank talks about the financial services industry, he frequently plays a clip from Glengarry Glenn Ross, which is Alec Baldwin saying, always be closing. <laughs> always be closing. <laughs> Only one thing that counts in this life, <laughs> get them to sign on the line, which is dotted. <laughs> Yeah, it's a brutal, it's a brutal speech. I've seen I've seen that movie. <laughs> Definitely wouldn't fly in 2023, but, <laughs> but it's, 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 it's what still goes on in the sales-oriented side of financial services. A hundred percent. Very accurate portrayal of the psychology there. Either either produce or get out. <laughs> so before we wrap up, I have one last question. So what is something you would say to, say, a Gen Z person graduating from college who wanted some basic financial advice? What would you say to a person like that? Well, you could go listen to podcast episode <laughs> number 208, where I did a Wizard of Oz uh, themed. Uh, oh, yeah, that was good. That was good. Advice for the beginning investor. Paul Merriman had asked me if I had anything to present to somebody like that. And at the time, I said, no, I really hadn't done anything, <laughs> but I'll create something. So there's that. But really, I think the investing part is not very important when you're starting out, mm -hmm. that you literally only need one fund if you want to go with that, a nice total market fund or S&P 500 fund, because you need to get in the habit of investing. And this is going to take time. It is like paint drying because of the way that this works, that exponential curve, it, it's very slow and low at the beginning, and you only start getting interesting results out of your investments after you've accumulated something. And that number is about $100,000 for most people, that you really are not going to see much of anything going on with your investments until you get to $100,000 in your 401ks or wherever you're accumulating that. So I would just focus on getting in that habit and getting to that point, because in the meantime, we have all of this information out there about investing and those those basic principles that have been around for 15, 20 years now about using low cost funds and using simple things and not getting caught up in a lot of complicated things that you're seeing on TikTok these days or anything else. All of that advice is still good advice and, and should be followed to begin with. So the procedure would be, all right, let's get let's get regular investing going. Then let's then then while that while we got that going, let's go learn some things. And then we can come back and make modifications or change up things because the other thing about it is what you put your money in the first few years is not going to matter. Even if you put it in a savings account and it didn't do anything for three years it's not going to matter all that much because the because it's just not that much money to start with if you're talking about just an, an IRA a nice portfolio if you if you really want a portfolio that is 
that works well, that works better than a standard S&P 500 or total market fund would be to put half of your money in one of those funds, total market, S&P 500, or a Vanguard or a large cap growth fund, VUG is the one I'm thinking of. Put half of your money in one of those or some combination of those, it doesn't really matter. And then put half of your money in a small cap value fund. VIOV is, is one that Vanguard has. Another new kid on the block is AVUV, which is an Avantis fund that Paul Merriman and company recommend. And basically, they do a, a best-in-class funds review every year now. Uh, that's free, and you can look it up on the internet if you want to fund in a particular area. But if you have those two funds, you're fine. The other thing that I would encourage you not to do is do not use target date funds. Do not use target date funds because they will they don't have what you want in them. And what they do is, is make you feel like you're doing magic with a black box as opposed to actually learning about investing and why it works the way it does. A target date fund is a fund of funds. It has, depending on whose it is, it will have usually some U.S. stocks, some foreign stocks, some U.S. bonds, and some foreign bonds. Well, you could usually build it yourself in your 401k, in your 401k allocations get all the components much cheaper than the target you, you date could, fund. But, but usually you don't even want some of those components. Yeah. Okay. There's there's almost no reason an individual investor in the United States need to hold any international bonds. Mm. That's essentially a speculation on the value of the US dollar. Mm. It's what it is. I like to call those the prison jumpsuits of personal finance. <laughs> they are designed to fit everybody. So they don't actually fit anybody. Okay, that's a, <laughs> that's a that's a compelling picture there. We don't want orange, to wind up in the orange, prison jumpsuits. Of orange is the new black, and they were designed not for people who are paying attention. Mm. They were designed for people who do not pay any attention to their funds. Gotcha. Those were never intended to be the base vehicle for people paying attention to build out their portfolios. And now they're the default option in most plans, right? Yeah, those were yeah. Th- those were invented as a default option for 401ks and 403bs because prior to that, a lot of people just weren't investing their money. Oh, so it, they would just kiss, stick it in a cash it, fund. It would and then, sit then... in there in a cash fund or some short-term bond fund, and it literally would not be invested for decades. Oh, no. That's terrible. And, and so around the early 2010s, this came out of books like Nudge by Richard Thaler and things like that. It's like, mm-hmm. we, need to, we need to make, what came out of that is like, all right, we need the default option for people getting jobs and signing up for 401ks is you are signed up for your 401k with some percentage going in there, at least mm-hmm. getting matching funds and things. And then we need to have investments for brain dead people who aren't going to pick their investments. Gotcha. So that, that is who the target date to fund is designed for. Hmm. It's only recently that the financial services people that create these things go, well, here's a marketing opportunity. <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's got it's got a it's got a name on it, and there's some kind of management going in there, and it's got this number, and you can match that your retirement, and it just it, doesn't it feel good to go into buy this black box and what 
I don't mind so much the fact that they exist and, and they're they're a default option for. Well, it's better than cash. It's, so it's much better than cash. It's much there's better. that. What disturbs me more is that it's it by using them it confuses people about investing, mm. and it actually interferes with their ability to learn about investing, because instead of seeing the their individual funds and seeing the performances, they just see this black box and stuff that comes out of it. And and so it's like I never learned how to cook because I always went to went to the kitchen and and got a TV dinner on and heated it up. Gotcha. Okay. So I'm I'm more worried about them from from the pedagogical point of view. And you know, I've told my 20-somethings to stay away from them. And then when you're ready to retire and you know nothing about investing, you you have no idea people, what to do. People get later on that that you do not want set it and forget it forever. Mm-hmm. Because you are going to need to live off that money at some point. And you do need to understand what you're being bombarded with in terms of information and be able to distinguish good information from bad information. And so these ideas of limiting information, using black boxes, kind of magical thinking that the use of target date funds I see has has led to is is not helpful for Gen Zs or <laughs> and anybody else because then you get these weird ideas that okay what I really need to do is have multiple target date funds and combine them <laughs> oh, as, if, as if there's some magical talisman to the 2060 versus the 2050 and the people that are doing this don't know what's in them and and they're like well i want to be more aggressive it's like it's like okay take the thing apart <laughs> you can do it yourself <laughs> it, 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 this is not rocket science the idea that we need target date funds cuz this is so hard to understand it's not hard to understand that that's the other thing is like personal finance is not mostly very hard to understand at all well, the financial industry wants to make it hard to understand, so you need them. Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's always, even look at the the terms people use. It's, it's, in my mind, it's in a, it's a method of infantilization. Mm-hmm. Why do we? Why would you call something baby steps? Do we, <laughs> do we want to stay babies forever? Right. Maybe. Right. Maybe, maybe you want to hire some nannies to feed you or <laughs> play in. Dave Ramsey got that idea from uh, What About Bob, by the way. So yeah. Richard Dreyfus's yeah. character, who's very arrogant, has this book yeah. Baby Step. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's condescending in a form of infantilization for an adult to be thinking about that. And then and, and then people are always come up with for the financial services industry, they're always coming up with these labels of things. Mm-hmm. The minimum dignity floor for your retirement. Can we just say baseline expenses like adults? Dignity, yeah, it's how like here. <laughs> Cinderella or something. Like. <laughs> what is it? The the go go, slow go, and no go years. Hmm. It's a very sing songy thing. It's helpful in some respects, but a lot of labeling done by the financial services industry is done so you can tell nice stories about what you're doing, and it interferes with actual understanding by adults of adult things. <laughs> so, <laughs> so 
I can only speak for my own family, my own children, but we, you know, we sit down, we talk about, no, this is how you do your taxes, this is why you do it the, this way. These are the things you can invest in. Read this book, you know, <laughs> the information's all there. It's not that complicated. I realize it's kind of overwhelming because there's too much of it. But these days there are a lot of good podcasts. And if you listen to something like Choose FI or they have like a free f- course, those guys have really tried to democratize financial concepts for people. And there are a lot of sort of good positive actors out there. You do have to take some interest in it. The classics like, you know, a Simple Path to Wealth are fine, but there are 16 different books that say the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> every every year there are five there are five new personal finance books written by old guys like me. He uh, does it in a very unique way though. I like the way JL Collins presents it. I think it's one of the better that's, ways. That's why it's a classic. Yeah. That's what, yeah. There are many imitators. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. There's a lot of books that do say the same thing. There, so. there are many imitators, but that but that was written for his adult child who was not interested in finances. And honestly, that's what my podcast was originally for, was simply to lay out some concepts and ideas so that when I get hit by a bus, they can listen to them because I'm tired of writing things down. I'd rather just talk into a microphone. Gotcha. Cool. So before we wrap up, what are the best ways for people to learn about you and reach you? The uh, Well, you can listen to the podcast. Risk Parity Radio is the name. There is a website, riskparityradio.com, where you can go. I am, and people email me all the time out of that. You can email me at frank at riskparityradio.com. And that's P-A-R-I-T-Y, not (laughs) P-A-R-O-D-Y. The other place I tend to hang out is in a couple of Facebook groups. One is called Taxes and Retirement, run by uh, Andy Panko or I think it used to be, that is the old thing. And then the Choose FI group on Facebook is also where I tend to tend to hang out and, and comment and answer people's questions. I've tried not to do too much more because <laughs> I, I don't really want to turn my podcast or anything into another job. It's important to me that it's not, that I don't have anything to sell. It's basically open source personal finance I do have a charity that I'm on the board of called the Father McKenna Center, which I pump on my podcast. And uh, you can learn about that there. But the I'm hoping to be just one more voice <laughs> of, of somebody who is interested and wants to share this kind of information broadly with whomever is interested. And, uh, you know, I most of the people on my podcast are are beyond the preliminary things and they're they, they've already accumulated lots of money and have lots of investments but I do get questions from people at the beginning of their journey and I'm I'm happy to address and, and answer those as well I don't do Twitter sorry <laughs> you're better off <laughs> I'm addicted you don't need to be addicted to uh, well I, I used to do Twitter and then realized you know this isn't this is probably not serving me because I don't have a business that needs to be promoted on Twitter Twitter I think is very good for people that have businesses or other things that they are wanting to promote and there's a lot of 
good and interesting people and information there, but I only have so much time. <laughs> good decision. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for your time. Thank you. This is uh this was fun and I'm always happy to drone on and on about this. I could talk all day <laughs> <laughs> like a bow weevil sitting on a stone. Right. <laughs> <dog in> <laughs> Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more information, please go to securityanalysis.org. Subscribers to the website get early ad-free access to podcast episodes in addition to weekly in-depth profiles of companies.